So we return this morning to our study of Mark's gospel, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. John Mark was an ordinary dude. He had failed at times. He had doubted at times. And yet God saw fit to speak through this man, to allow him to take the faithful eyewitness accounts regarding the person and life and ministry of Jesus Christ our Lord and record them for us. His goal is that we would rightly see and believe in Jesus Christ. His goal is that we would have a high view of Christ. It's the very same view I have for us as a faith family. We have spent a lot of hours in this gospel, week after week. My goal for us is as we, as we come in here and we come to these words, that we would just see Christ so clearly. I don't need to convince you. You understand this, right? I don't need to convince you to understand the glory of Christ. I just need to show him to you. For those that are his, for those that have been given eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to believe, you're going to see. You're going to believe. So we, we took a break last week from Mark's gospel as we, as we came, to the, came to the table for the Lord's Supper. And you'll recall that the week before that, we read about one of those well-known miracles, those supernatural events with Jesus feeding of a crowd. 5,000 men plus women and children. It may have been twenty or 30,000 people, something like that, with a couple of fish and five barley loaves. God, through whom all things were created, he was creating again. Everyone had their fill. There was leftovers. Because God doesn't just do the bare minimum. There were leftovers. And he was just showing that I'm the, I'm the God that creates. I'm the God that supplies. I'm the God of, of your provision. Now, this was a huge event. Not only because this was the only miracle except for the resurrection that's recorded in all four Gospels. But because this set the stage for a great exodus, a mass exodus amongst Jesus' followers. We know from John's gospel, John chapter 6 tells us that on the very next day, the day after the feeding, that the people came to Jesus. They chased him down, as a matter of fact. They'd been waiting for centuries for the Messiah to come. And one of the signs of the Messiah was going to be the ability to bring them food in the wilderness, much like Moses. And they had seen all that they needed to see. Jesus Christ was that one. If he could meet their needs in these supernatural ways, then surely he was the one to lead a rebellion against Rome and to restore Israel to its proper place. They were going to come to him. Whether he wanted it or not, they were going to come to him and they were going to attempt to force him to be their king. It's just like today. People see the miracles in Scripture and they, they hear the promises of, of empty preaching and they believe that if this Jesus Christ, if he can, if he can make sure that I don't suffer, if he can meet all of my needs, if he can keep me healthy and wealthy and wise, then you sign me up for that kind of Jesus. That's the kind of Jesus that I want to follow after. And so the crowds, they came from all over. His popularity was at an all-time high. They were going to take him, whether he agreed to or not. It was their intent that they were going to take him to be their king. But Jesus wasn't involved in politics. You can sum up his political stance with render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and unto God what is God's. He didn't greet them with an acceptance speech. Instead, he met them with some deep, difficult theology. He spoke to them and he said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He went on to say, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. He was waiting for them with some of the toughest teaching 
some of the hardest doctrine that man would ever receive. He wasn't there to join them in this political match. He wasn't there to meet their every physical need in that moment. But this massive crowd, they were ready, they were ready to follow him. They were ready to go with him. But instead of dumbing down his message, instead of making promises about what needs he was going to meet, instead of promising that he was going to overcome this evil Roman empire, he stretched them beyond themselves. He told them that what I've come to offer is myself. You have to want me more than you want political freedom. You have to want me more than you want bread. You have to want me more than you want health. You have to want me more than you even want your own life. If you come to me on those terms, eternal life shall be yours. If you come to me as your ultimate delight, if you cherish in me more than all the good things this world has to offer, eternal life shall be yours. But if you come to me on any other terms, if you come to me and you try to fit me into your box, if you come to me and try to bend me into your will, you are always going to be left unsatisfied. You will completely miss me. And there's no amount of bread, there's no amount of earthly freedom that is ever going to satisfy you the way that I will. And for this crowd, that's what they were looking for. So by the time that Jesus was done speaking, the people said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And many, after this, many of the disciples, they turned back and they no longer walked with him. Listen again to who it was that turned back. After this, many disciples turned back and no longer followed him. This wasn't the crowd. These weren't the looky-loos. These weren't just the people that heard a, heard a ruckus and decided they were going to come over there and see what was going on. These were followers. These were disciples. These were people that had heard the message of Jesus Christ. They had seen his works, and they had committed to follow after him. Up to this point, they would have looked just like the faithful and committed disciples that were going to follow on to the end. They had all the same markings. And yet when, D, when Jesus dashed their hopes, when he told them, I haven't come to be the Jesus of your making. I'm the son of the most high God. What I come to offer is myself, not to meet your whims. With that challenge, they were no longer interested. They turned and they went away. They were the folks of rocky and thorny soil. They're the ones that we're not going to endure. They were never really with him, and so they went out from him. Dear friends, I was, I was thinking about this this morning as I was praying before I came out here. We are going to get to the text, by the way. But as I, as I, was, as I was praying before I came out here, and I was thinking about the, the disciples that will turn away. When the doctrine gets tough, when the teaching gets hard, when Jesus doesn't match up with your expectations. And I was thinking about those with rocky and thorny soil. And it occurred to me as I was alone in my prayer closet that there's a lot of people that believe that salvation is like your 401k. They believe that eventually you get vested into your salvation. You've done enough. I've been here long enough. I've followed long enough. I've held the faith long enough. Look, I hit 65 and I'm done, right? I'm fully vested in my salvation. Now I can just sit back and enjoy the returns. Look, I've served for 10 years. Surely that's enough. I can sit back and be done. There's no such thing. There's no such thing. You won't get to declare that you have finished the race, that you have fought the fight, that you have kept the faith until the end, until the very last day. I've told you before about the incredible blessing that comes as a pastor when I get to go to the bedside of a dying saint. When I get to be there with one that has fought the fight, that has run the race, that has kept the faith, and they know that they will soon see Jesus face to face. I've yet to sit at the bedside of a saint and said, you know what? I know you gave up 20 years ago, but man, you did a lot leading up to then. I'm sure you're going to be okay. 
These were the folks with the rocky and the thorny soil. Times got tough. He didn't match up with who they were, and so they walked away. And so Jesus turns to his 12. John 6, 67 through 69. So Jesus said to the 12, Do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered them, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Simon Peter and the other 11, minus Judas, of course, but he and the other 11, they were the ones that were going to endure. They were going to continue on, not perfectly, of course. They would have their doubts. They would squabble over who was going to be greatest in the kingdom. They would be confused over Jesus' hard teaching. They would scatter whenever the shepherd was struck. They weren't perfect, but these were the ones that were going to endure. They knew they had nowhere else to turn. So by Jesus' hand, he was going to cause them, just as he had promised. Jesus goes on to say, excuse me, just previous to that, he says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of the one who sent me, that I should lose nothing of that that has been given to me, but raise it up on the last day. He has promised, I will not lose them. This is the promise from Scripture, that these that endured, they endured by his hand. So I have to believe that this gap, this text that we come to this morning, it falls in that gap between the feeding of the 5,000 and the, the exodus, the walking away of many disciples. I have to believe that what happens in this morning's text, that this is part of the way that Jesus caused them to endure. You see, we're told in Scripture that those who endure to the end will be saved. And we're told that it's only by the hand of Jesus Christ that he's the one that holds firm to our salvation. But we don't know exactly how this is going to play out. We don't know the means by which he's going to hold on to us. Now, sure, there's the ordinary and the regular means. Time studying the scripture. Time alone in prayer. Time in corporate worship. Taking of the sacraments. There are those ordinary means by which we know day in and day out God continues to strengthen our faith and, faith and cause us to endure. But you don't wake up in the morning and then have a little note on your pillow that says, Good morning, Josh. Today's going to be a really tough day. But your, strength, your faith is going to be strengthened. Today you're going to learn endurance through suffering. Today I'm going to show you something heavy. He doesn't give us that kind of advanced warning. He doesn't tell us when we sign up, and he doesn't tell us when the day is here. But I have to believe that that's exactly what he was doing here. He was refining these men by fire. He was causing them to endure. So with that, go ahead and stand to your feet, please. We're back in Mark 6, beginning in verse 45. And immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, when he dismissed the crowd. <clears throat> and after he had taken leave of them, he went up onto the mountain and prayed. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass, pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost, and they cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. All God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. Father God, would you make this book live to me? In it, would you show me yourself? Would you show me myself? Would you show me my Savior? Would you make this book live to me? It's in your Son's precious name we pray. Amen. So the text began like this. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. 
Again, the crowd was buzzing. This is exactly what they had been waiting for. This was the moment they had enough people there. Surely this was the time when you could mount a rebellion. This was the time that you could get your act together and go and overthrow, overthrow the Romans and restore the kingdom of Israel to its proper place. But Jesus was going to send his disciples away. Why? And we've just talked about why he wasn't going to acquiesce to the people's desires. We've just told you why he isn't going to lead some kind of political or military agenda. But why did he send the disciples away? Why didn't he allow the 12 to stay there and watch him as he confronted the crowd and as he dispersed them? I have to believe that it's in part because their desires were the same as the crowd's. These guys had the very same hopes. We see this all the way to the very end. Even after Jesus is crucified and resurrected, they tell him, Acts 1-6, they say to him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? They wanted the same kind of physical earthly kingdom. See, that's the thing. Even when we come to Jesus Christ, our desires don't automatically change. Sure, he shows us some new desires, some great desires, but those old ones, they continue to creep back in. And knowing the weakness, knowing the desires of the, these men, in order to protect them from getting swept up into the frenzy, he sends them away. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. It says here that he made them get into the boat. The word for made, the Greek word there, it comes from the root, ananke. It means to, to, to force. It means to press. It means to push. The guys didn't want to go. They wanted to be there. Was it they wanted to be there because of the crowd? Was it they wanted to be there because that's where Jesus was? We don't know. But he wasn't putting this up to a vote. He wasn't giving them any, op uh, any option. He told them, I am going to send you. I'm going to press you. I'm going to force you. I'm going to compel you to get in this boat and go. That's going to be key. That's going to be key for our understanding of this morning's text. The reality that they weren't going somewhere on their own accord. As a matter of fact, they, uh, it appears as though they maybe even resisted at a moment. But Jesus compelled them. He pushed them. He forced them to get in the boat and go out on the water. Perhaps they saw the storm that was coming, and they knew we don't want to be out there. And yet Jesus told them, and they went. Similarly, it tells us that he dismissed the crowd. I don't know how he did this, but he spoke, and they dispersed. They went. To wherever it is they were going to sleep that night, they went, while his disciples went to the other side, to Bethsaida. Now, if you've been with us and you've been walking through this gospel, you know that this might be a, a point of confusion here. Because you'll remember that in Luke's gospel, it tells us that the feeding of the 5,000 happened at Bethsaida. That Jesus and his, and his apostles, that they were there in Capernaum, that they went to the other side of the sea, they went to Bethsaida. And we talked about how, as best we can tell, Bethsaida was a town on the northern side of the Sea of Galilee, right about the place that the Jordan River enters into the sea. So which one is it? Did he feed the 5,000 in Bethsaida, or did he send them on on this day to Bethsaida? So there's, there's a couple of options here. There's three explanations. One of them is that either Matthew, or excuse me, either Mark or Luke are wrong. We know that can't be it because it's God who spoke to them. It's God who spoke through them. And in addition to that, there would have been people in the first and second century, early readers of these gospels, they would have known where Bethsaida was. There would have been people there that had eaten the food and had, had, had seen the miracle that Jesus performed. They would have said, wait, time out. You got your facts wrong here. Let us correct you. So we know that that, that can't be it. Option number two is that there were two Bethsaidas. There was one on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee and one on the northwest closer to Capernaum. That could be it. I think that's probably doubtful. A third option, and this is the one that most commentators and some pastors that I respect seem to hold to, is the feeding of the 5,000 was somewhere just east of Bethsaida, and that when they departed from there and headed back home towards Capernaum, they had to pass. They had to go the way of Bethsaida. So that Bethsaida was really at the heart of both the coming and the going and the place at which they stopped and had the, had the feeding of the 5,000. We don't know for sure. I'll let you decide for yourself. But the point is that they were leaving now and they were heading back that direction. 
And after they had taken leave of him, he went up on the mountain and prayed. Now, we're not told, there's not a whole lot of times where we're given any insight into what Jesus is praying about in Mark's gospel. There's actually very few times when he tells us about him going alone to pray. But we know that this was a marker. This was a consistent all throughout Jesus' earthly ministry, that he was alone with the Father. Now, we're not told what it was that he prayed about here, but you have to imagine, given what lay ahead for his apostles, for his disciples, you have to imagine he was there and he was praying on their behalf. Think about it. The very next day, many of his disciples were going to depart and never follow him any longer. Less than a year from this point, Jesus was going to ascend and go back to the Father. So for all sense and purposes, the men that were in that boat, they were the hope for the kingdom of God. The message, the gospel of Jesus Christ, wrapped up with these 12 ordinary men out there on that water. And knowing what laid ahead of him, surely he was going to pray for them. There was no plan B. So surely he did. He went to the Father. He interceded on their behalf. That's what a great high priest does. Jesus Christ is the only God-man that ever was, fully God and fully man. He's the only one qualified to be the good and righteous and faithful mediator between God and man, to go to them on his behalf. So we see this picture. We'll see it towards the end of Jesus' ministry. There in the upper room on the night of his betrayal. You remember the high, pri the high priestly prayer there in John 17? It's a beautiful passage of Scripture. I tell you to go read it on your own, but there's, there's just one, one verse there in chapter nine, that, or in verse 9 of chapter 17 that kind of tells us what it's all about. He says, I am praying for them. Talking about those that are there, those that are his. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those that you have given me, for they are yours. And on that very same night as he talks to Simon Peter, he says, Luke 22, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Surely that's the kind of prayer he was offering up. Not just a prayer for physical safety, but a prayer that their faith would not fail. He was going to entrust the kingdom of God to these 12 ordinary dopes. He was sending them out into the middle of a storm. He knew what was waiting for him. And so surely he went to the Father and he prayed that their faith should not fail. Dear friends, I pray that gives you great courage. And knowing that he continues in that role today. That after, after his death, after his resurrection, after his ascension, he didn't stop in this work. He continues to serve. The only man that is able to mediate between God and man, Jesus Christ himself, that he's there representing you to the Father. We read about this in Hebrews 7, 25. Therefore, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So that Satan attacks, you need to know this, your name is in Satan's mouth, and he attacks, and he accuses, and he comes against. You've got the promise that Jesus is there, and he's interceding with God on your behalf. This truth has great practical consequences as well. When you're in the middle of a storm, you know, we, we love this verse, as, this big, beautiful chunk of Scripture in Romans 8 that assures us of, of just the inseparability of, of us from God, how, how those that are God's, that there's nothing that can rip us away from him. There's nothing that can separate us from his love. But what's often missed in there is the fact that he's interceding in the middle of all this. Listen to Romans 8, 31 through 34. What then shall we say of these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding, who is indeed is interceding for us. It goes on to talk about tribulation and distress and famine and nakedness and sword. He's saying in the middle of all this, you need to know that you've got a high priest. No longer do you go to the priest of men, 
Not only do you need someone else to represent you before God, but you have a great, great high priest. Jesus Christ has been tempted in every way as you have, and yet without sin. And he stands at the right hand of the Father, and he speaks on your behalf in the middle of great trials, in the middle of your failures, in the middle of your doubts. That ought to put a pep in your step. That will allow you to face the things that come. Knowing that even when you don't have the words, we know that the Holy Spirit also is speaking on your behalf. The triune God there is for you, speaking when you have no words. Knowing that Jesus Christ not only became flesh for you, he not only fulfilled all righteousness for you, he not only died an atoning sacrifice for you, he was not only raised for the dead for you, but he's now interceding to the Father for you. I've done a lot of stuff that should have separated me from the love of a lot of people. It's a miracle I'm still married. It's a miracle my children will speak to me. It's a miracle any of you will sit there and listen to a word I say. But there's nothing that will separate me from the love of Christ. And he is there interceding now with the Father. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land, and he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. So he's alone. Specifically, we know he's alone on the mountain and he's praying. And the boat is out at sea. And so the NASB translates the, the passage in Matthew like this. It says that there were many stadia away from the land. A stadia is about 190 feet. Excuse me, 190 meters. That's something like 600 feet. Something like this. They were a long way out in the water. Specifically, John tells us there were three or four miles. Now the entire Sea of Galilee is only eight miles across. So truly, they were out in the middle of this lake. But you'll remember when we talked about what this trip looked like, when we talked about the feeding of the 5,000, they were kind of just cruising along the northwest corner. They are kind of cruising along the bank there. So this wind, these waves, they had pushed them out where they didn't belong. This wasn't their course. They were out somewhere they didn't belong where they didn't want to be because the wind was against them, because the sea was rough. We've talked before about how things can get bad so quickly out there on the Sea of Galilee. It's just a wind tunnel. It's a tiny little lake. And so it doesn't take much for a storm to whip up and all of a sudden you're somewhere you don't want to be and you're in deep trouble. And I need to remind you today, just as I did back when we talked about the calming of the storm, these men were not there because they had disobeyed Jesus. They were not there because they had broken from his will. They were not there because they had wandered off from his path. They were specifically where God had sent them. Jesus Christ sent them into this storm, knowing what lay ahead. They were right smack dab within the middle of God's will, and that's why he sent them. He compelled them to go. They didn't want to go, and yet he compelled them to go headlong into this storm. Christian, don't you ever forget this. The world tells us that our job is to flee from suffering, to withdraw from pain, to move towards anything that makes us feel good. Even within churches all throughout this country, you have preachers that stand up because it's what their congregation demands. Tell us how to make our life better now. Tell us how to ease our discomfort now. Tell us how to avoid suffering now. But believe me, you've been called to something different. If you're going to follow after the will of God, if you're going to be a true follower of Jesus Christ, you need to know that you've been called to suffer. I say this as a word of encouragement. I say this as a word of encouragement to those of you that are in the middle of deep suffering i say this to those of you that look up and you wonder does god know that i'm here and does he care i say this a word of encouragement to tell you that yes he does yes he cares he's not only allowed it he has ordained it it's a way in which he's going to cause you to endure that he's going to strengthen your faith and then when you get to, when you get to the end of this life you're going to find out that he's worked it all for your good but I also say it as a word of warning 
For those of you for whom life looks like a lazy river, or at least that's your desire, cold drink in your hand, good book in the other, not a care in the world, Scripture tells us those that suffer with Christ will be glorified. Face to face with an option. I can choose Christ and I can suffer greatly. My reputation will take a hit. My finances will take a hit. My health may take a hit. Or I can go the easy route that the world tells me to take. When's the last time you suffered with Christ? Suffered in ways that glorified Christ instead of bringing attention to yourself. That's the other piece to this. We live in a strange time where the world celebrates victims. It's like we've overcompensated. There was a time when victims were ashamed of being victims. That's not right. That's not true. That's not biblical. Now we've come all the way to the other, time, uh, the other, other side where everybody that's a victim, they want to just stand up and say, look at me, look at me, look at me, look how hard my life is. That's not the picture either. There's something to be said about those that just put their head down and they go through the storm with Jesus Christ, suffering in ways that glorify him, walking as he walked through his suffering, learning obedience as he learned obedience. It's so countercultural. It's so against this world. And yet we know that's exactly what we've been called to. Read this from Romans 5, 3 through 5. We rejoice in our suffering. Rejoice in our suffering. We don't look for suffering. We don't go cause suffering. But we rejoice in sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into the hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us so that we can join with the Lord's brother, James, as he says this, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing, that we embrace this suffering, that we rejoice in this suffering, because we know that there's something good on the other side. Not a bunch of sadists. We're not stupid. We don't hate ourselves. We embrace and rejoice in suffering because we know that it's God doing a work. You know that he's leading us towards glory. He's strengthening our faith. That's one of the ways in which you endure. But everything within us cries to pull back. Look, you don't have to teach a baby when they put their hand on a stove to pull back. There's something wrong with a kid. Right? There is some disease out there, I think, right, where, where people don't know to pull their hand off a stove or out of a fire or something like that. That's pull back. Train them to press in. You have to train them to rejoice in the middle of that. That's what God's doing with these men. These apostles, they had been in this spot before. So they surely had to have felt abandoned. They surely had to have felt neglected like he didn't care. But at this point, it tells us that Jesus sees them. And we don't know how Jesus... If he was up on a mountain... It's possible to see out in good conditions. It's possible to see out three, four, five miles onto the Sea of Galilee. But conditions weren't great, and the sun was either setting or had already set. And so that's probably not it. It seems more likely that this was the same kind of sight that he saw Nathaniel sitting under a fig tree long before he ever met him. It seems to me that this was a supernatural sight which only God possesses. The same kind of sight that he sees you with today. 
I know that there's plenty of times that you look up and you wonder, does God care and does he see? I can't hear his voice. I can't sense his will. The 12 hours. Have you been there? You know that you're on the path that Jesus has sent you to? You knew that there was going to be suffering? But dang, surely he would have let up by now? My arms are exhausted. The rest of the dudes in the boat, they're quitting. You want me to keep rowing? You've been there. But at this point, we need to hit pause and remember who this text is all about. Because here's the thing. Because we can all relate to the apostles, because we can all relate to the suffering and the straining and the pushing and the being somewhere that you didn't think you were ever supposed to be, and because our troubles are so large, they loom so large right there in our face, we can forget that this whole text is about Jesus Christ, that that's the only place that our hope is found, that what you need infinitely more than what you need, you need to see Christ more clearly than you see yourself. More than seeing yourself and your situation clearly, you need to see Christ. You need to see his glory. The higher your view of Jesus Christ, the smaller your other stuff becomes. That's where the hope is found. That was the purpose of Mark's gospel, to show us Jesus Christ, Son of the Most High God, and only God can walk on water. We know this intuitively. We know it in Scripture. The Old Testament has a number of passages about this. One of my favorites is out of Job 9, Job 9, 5 through 8. He who, you want to talk about someone that has a high view of God? Go read Job. Go read through Job. It's like every word, I think he spoke every word he knew to try to grasp at the greatness of God. And he kept knowing, I'm not there yet, and just kept going. But he talks about this, Job 9, 5 through 8. He who removes mountains, and they know it not, when he overturns them in his anger, he shakes the earth out of its place, and its pillars tremble. Who commands the sun, and it does not rise. Who seals up the stars. Who stretches out the heavens and tramples on the waves of the sea. Only God who created everything that is can bend that creation to his will. To his will. And we see yet again Jesus Christ doing things that only God can do. And now you've heard all the theories. Well, Jesus was just walking along the shore. The guy just saw him walking along the shore. If they were that close to the shore, why didn't they just jump out? Well, he was walking along a sandbar. He just walked along a sandbar right up to the boat. Okay. These guys, many of them had lived. This wasn't a giant body of water, by the way. We talked about the size, 13 by 8 miles, something like that. These men had spent a lot of time out there on the water. They knew where all the sandbars were. In addition to that, the Scripture tells us they were terrified. You wouldn't be terrified of a dude walking along a bank or walking along a sandbar. Guys, don't allow your familiarity with this text to rob you of the awe that it should bring. Jesus Christ, the Son of the Most High God, walked on water. You can't do that. I know they find these monks in Asia somewhere. That dude makes like two steps and falls, and we're like, that's pretty close. You can't do this. He didn't just do it as a circus trick. He didn't just show, I am God, son of the most high God. There's nothing within creation that I cannot use for my glory, that I cannot use for my will. So about the fourth, night, fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea, and he meant to pass them by. He meant to pass, why? Why would he pass them by? He knew they were in trouble. Hadn't he come out there to save them? Why in the world would the Scripture tell us that he had passed on? There's a couple of plausible explanations. One of those is that he was passing them by as another show of his divinity. You remember in the Old Testament that there's a number of times when God would reveal himself to people, but he would say, you cannot see my face and live. I'm going to allow you to see my back. So that he would take Moses and put him in the cleft of a rock or Elijah there in the cave, and he would pass by. 
It would pass by, and so perhaps that was it. He was showing, I am the same God that came to Moses and came to Elijah, and you may now see my back. The other option, or our second option, is that we've got to remember that much of what Mark recorded for us, he received from Peter as a firsthand account. So maybe this was just from the apostle's perspective. It appeared as though Jesus was passing by, but he was never actually intending to pass him by. And there's a third option here, and I don't know how, how, how reasonable this is, but I found myself just enthralled with the possibility of this. That, that possibly what was happening here is that Jesus was giving them the opportunity to cry out. His desire was to pass them by so that therein they would have the opportunity to cry out to him and that by his response they would see him more clearly. There was another way in which he was revealing himself to them, preparing them for what lied ahead. And we see a picture kind of like this after Jesus' resurrection. We see it in Luke's gospel. You remember that Jesus was on the road to Emmaus and there was two disciples that were there and he comes alongside them and they were distraught just like the people in this story were distraught. They were distraught. You remember why? Because they had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. They thought that Jesus had failed because he died, because they thought he was coming as an earthly king to restore Israel to its proper place. They, same, kind of, same kind of distress these guys were experiencing. And so Jesus comes alongside them, and he explains himself throughout the entire Old Testament. He says, it's all been about me. All the prophets, all the kings, all the law, all the sacrifices, they all pointed to me. And then listen to what happens. Luke 24, 28 through 31. So they drew near to the village where they were going, and he acted as if he was going to go a bit further. But they urged him strongly, saying, stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in, and he stayed with them. And when he was at the table, he took the bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to them. And their eyes were open, and they recognized him. Maybe, I don't know this for sure, I'm not going to stake my eternity on it, but maybe what was happening was exactly this. It was Jesus' intent to pass by that they would cry out. They would call out, and that in his response, they would see him. They would recognize him. They would know him more fully. Verse 20, uh, 49, excuse me. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost, and they cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. Every time Jesus does the supernatural, the dudes are shook. Despite everything that they had seen, despite everything that they knew, they're just wrecked. They're terrified. In fact, they think they've seen a ghost. Phantasma is the word in Greek. It's where we get the word phantom from. I don't use that word often. I use it a lot this week, though. It's funny when you're studying particular words in Scripture, you start using them in your vocabulary, and then your family accuses you of trying to sound smart. I use the word phantom a bunch this week because it's here, but they thought he was some kind of spirit. That was some kind of spirit that was walking out of the water because the wind and the waves, and they, it wasn't affecting him. He had to catch them. You know this, right? They had a head start. He didn't come until the fourth watch. So they've been out there for nine or 12 hours or whatever it is. So not only is he walking on water, he's walking faster than they could move in the boat. That's creepy. That's scary. So they believed that he was some kind of spirit, and they cried out. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Dear friends, up to this point, six chapters into Mark's gospel, we have seen tons of miracles. There's been many more that haven't been recorded for us. Jesus Christ has just recorded, uh, has just performed miracle after miracle in front of thousands and thousands of people, and yet only a few really grasped it. Only a few truly understood. Only a few continued to follow. And the difference was always those that heard his voice. My sheep will hear my voice. My sheep will know my voice. How did they know who it was that was calling out? It is I. He didn't say, it is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He said, it is I. How did they know? Nicodemus? Herod? Pharaoh? Who is it? Who is coming out here? They knew his voice because he was theirs. And we're reminded here. That seeing the works of Jesus Christ, seeing the miracles of Jesus Christ, is not in and of itself a guarantee of belief leading unto salvation. 
I'm studying. One of my courses I'm taking right now is missiology, and I'm loving it. I'm loving it. I thought it was going to be nothing more than just a pep rally for missions. I thought it was going to be nothing more than just where they show us how we should be excited about missions and we should be involved in missions. No, no, no. This class goes deep into the, into the doctrine, the theology of missions. Who, how are we to pattern ourselves? What, what challenges are we going to face? And, and one of those is the pow- one of the things that, that we're studying is the power encounter versus the truth encounter. See, there's a whole lot of people out there that think if I can just show the power of God to enough people, they'll all come to faith in Jesus Christ. That power without the truth of God is nothing. We see that throughout Scripture. Plenty of people saw the power of God on display in Jesus Christ, and they walked away unimpressed. It's only those that heard his voice. It's only those that heard his voice and knew the truth behind what he was saying. And so he cries out, it is I, and me ego is the Greek. It's that great self-revelation. It's one of those divine revelations. You remember that all throughout John's gospel, seven times in John's gospel, Jesus gives the I am statements, pointing back to the encounter of God with Moses when he says, I am who I am, ego and me. I am. You can't compare me to anybody else. You can't use any analogies. I am. I am who I am. That's what he's saying here on this water. The great I am was there with him on the water, and that should have brought great courage to them. Verse 51. So he got in the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. So most of you probably originally heard this story told in your Sunday school days out of the Gospel of Matthew. And so you're probably sitting there going, wait, time out. I thought Peter got to walk on the water too. And we don't know why some, why God has used some of, of the Gospel writers to record parts of the story and others. I think maybe it was because Peter didn't want the story to be all about him. And so when he told the story to Mark, or maybe he was embarrassed, I don't know. But he didn't, he didn't pass that part on to Mark. And so God used Matthew in order to record that. But yes. Sometime between Jesus' self-identification and getting in the boat, you remember that the men cried out. Peter cried out specifically and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you. I don't know what Peter's motivation was here. In the English, it can sound a little bit like he was testing him. Like, prove yourself, Jesus. If it's really you, call me. I I don't think that's what that is. I I think there's a couple of options. I think that maybe he had tasted the power. Remember, he had sent them out with the authority to heal demons, to raise the dead, to, to, uh, to cleanse of demons, to heal the sick, to raise the dead. Perhaps you wanted to experience that power yet again of walking on water. I want to do more of the things that you can do, Jesus. Or maybe you just wanted to be with him. Even if it meant standing on the sea in the middle of a storm, he just wanted to be with Jesus, like a little boy running to his daddy when a thunderstrike happens. He just wanted to be with Jesus. We don't know for sure. We know that he did. He called him. He said, come. And he comes out there to him, and that along the way, he freaks out. He looks around, and he sees the wind, and he starts sinking like a rock, and that Jesus reaches down, grabs, and says, ye of little faith, why do you doubt? He still didn't have faith. He had little faith. He had faith. He had little faith. He still doubted in the middle of all this storm. And so he sunk. Jesus reached down and he, and he pulls him up. He was representative truly of the entire group. They were all a bunch of folks with little, little faith. So Jesus cri- climbs into the boat. The wind ceases. Just like, just like the last storm when he was on the boat where he says, peace, be still. Everything was immediately calm. Now, if you read this in parallels, if you read this, this, this event, the walk on the water, it's recorded in three of the Gospels. But if you read these parallel encounters, you're going to find what seems to be a contrast there. Because Matthew tells us that those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. But Mark's text tells us that they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Which one is it? Were they worshipping? Or were their hearts hardened? It's both. 
It's both. That even in the middle of worshiping their king, their hearts were hardened. And we don't have time. I'm almost out of time, so I don't have time to fully unpack what, how it's possible for those that would endure with Jesus Christ to have hardened hearts. We're going to talk about this, God willing, when we get to Mark 8. We're going to read a scripture in Mark 8 where Jesus asked them, how do you still not understand? They're worried about bread again. These dudes were always worried about their belly. They looked up, they had gone on a trip, and they thought, we forgot to bring lunch. And Jesus is like, why are y'all still worried about bread? Do you still not understand? Are your hearts hardened? I'll just say this this morning, that failure to comprehend, failure to understand, is always tied to a hardened heart. We see that throughout the first chapter of Romans. Where Paul is admonishing people, he's telling them, listen, you need to understand. The reason you don't understand, it isn't because you lack knowledge. It's because your hearts are hardened. What you, what you need is not more knowledge. You need a changed heart. Is it good and right to dive deep into God's word, to study his word, to wrestle with his word, to accumulate as much knowledge of the holy as we can? Absolutely. But you need to understand that your ability to understand and comprehend God's word and God's message, it's not tied to your intellectual capacity. Smartest men in the world miss it. Slowest men in the world grasp it when their hearts have been transformed. And you've got a heart of flesh. You've been given eyes to see. He says that you need to have faith like a child. Children don't have the deepest intellect, but they can grapple with these truths because they come to their fathers when it says, I just trust. I just trust. The stuff I don't understand, I just trust you with it. I trust you that you're telling me what's true. I don't demand to understand everything. I come and I say, you tell me what is true, and I accept it as truth because it comes from your word. That's the truth. Jesus was still doing a softening work in these men's lives. So it is possible, even as we continue to worship him as king, even as we continue to walk in obedience, it's possible for that old heart to just keep coming back up, that old heart to continue to pop back up, the doubts and the distrust and the fear and the hardness of heart. It creeps back in. So the question isn't, does your heart ever become hardened? The question is, do you endure in that hardness? Do you continue with that hardened heart? Or do you turn to him and say, look, my heart's awfully hard because I'm not getting it. I don't understand that I'm having doubts. I think we see a, a, a picture of that perhaps with John the Baptist when he was in prison. Remember he sent a message to Jesus and he says, are you, are you the one? Or should we still be waiting for somebody else? How could John the Baptist not know? But I believe it's right to go to God with those doubts, with those questions. And I think that's what's happening here. So the men's heart were hardened and they, but at the same time, they, they come to him in worship. They know who he is. They don't want to walk away. They, they know there's not salvation found in anyone else. They know they don't have the, the right answers. And so they fall down and they worship him as God. This is really a, a, a crucial point because up to this point, we've read about demons addressing Jesus as son of the most high God. Perhaps some of the people that he's healed have had this kind of confession. But now the apostles are joining in. Truly, you are the son of God. This is going to be critical for what comes next as the rest of the crowd turns and goes away. As he takes them into deep doctrine. If you really talk to them about the meaning of salvation, it's going to be critical that they understand this. And then John tells us that immediately the boat was at the land which they were going. It's a miracle inside a miracle. We don't even talk about that piece of it. We talk about Jesus walking on water. That's crazy. How about a boat just instantaneously getting where it was supposed to go? What's that feel like? Hyperspeed? A dream? What happens? I heard a yeah. Yeah, that's right. I don't even know. That's the thing about Jesus. So many miracles, like we just missed some of them. We didn't even camp out on them. But instantaneously, in a moment, they were right where they went to go. Dear friends, I pray that this is an encouragement to you. I pray that you recognize that Jesus Christ, Son of the Most High God, He is sending you into places that are going to hurt. 
He may well send you on a path and you believe that you know exactly where you're going. You may know, believe that you know where the destination is and you may find yourself out in the middle of the ocean. You may find yourself somewhere that you never thought you were ever going to be, straining at the oars and wondering, does he see and does he care? But on the authority of God's word, I'm telling you that he does, that he's interceding for the fa- to the Father, that your faith may not fail, that he's speaking on your behalf, and that he comes to you, not physically, by the Spirit. He said, I will not leave you as orphans. I will not leave you stranded. Does that mean that he's going to protect us from all the wind, from all the storms, and he's going to always preserve our life? Absolutely not. Someday you're going to die. Some of you may well die for the cause of Christ. You may lay down your life because you have chosen obedience to Christ over your own life. He hasn't promised you that he's going to ease your suffering. He has promised you that he's going to use your suffering. It's going to be a means by which he's going to cause you to endure. It's going to be a means by which he builds up your faith. It's going to be a means by which you can be assured that you are his, that you suffer with him. I know how contrary this message is to what the one the world gives you. And I know it's not the message we want. Listen, I wish there wasn't suffering. If there was some other way, if Jesus said, hey, I can give you absolute heaven on earth and absolute heaven in heaven, everything's just going to be gravy the minute you give your life to me, I'd love to stand up here and preach that message. We'd have full services every hour. People would line up around the block for that. But that's not reality. And clearly that's not what's good. Because God does what is good. God does what is right. So clearly it is good and it is right and it is holy and it is edifying for us to walk through suffering. That's my prayer for you this morning. That you would walk out of this place with a spine of steel committed that in the name of Christ Jesus you are going to walk wherever he tells you to walk and you're going to trust him with whatever comes next. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you, Father, that we as your chosen people, those that have been called to life, that we don't have to constantly flinch around every corner wondering if the suffering and the pain that we experience is your hand of wrath. We thank you that we know that your son Christ Jesus has paid the full penalty for our sins, that you are for us, and that whatever pain, whatever suffering, whatever turmoil and trial we experience in this life, that we can trust you, that you are working it all for our good and for your glory. Help us to live in light of that. Help us to quit being such cowards. Help us to quit shrinking back. Help us to quit being so selfish. Help us to go all in, Father, to embrace what it is that you have for us in this lifetime and to make our message, our sole message, Jesus Christ and him crucified, knowing that that is the only thing that a dying world needs. That is the only thing that can save the dying world around us. As we lift our voices in song now, Father, we pray that you would be pleased by the words that we sing. We pray that you would be glorified by our worship. And we pray that we would be changed as a result. It's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. Stand to your feet, please. We continue worshiping.